I believe that he has not condemned the neo-Nazis and the self-proclaimed white supremacists. Then his speech, which was a cry from the white nationalist gut. So I can't tell you what's in his heart, Judy. I don't know. It could be total rank, cynical opportunism. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Josh King, author of Offscript, hosting this weekend's show as I meditate on an image. It's that now famous January 28th photograph of President Trump on the phone in the Oval Office, shot through the closed door but still visible through the glass. On the other end of the line, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Surrounding him at the Resolute Desk, National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, Press Secretary Sean Spicer, Chief Strategist Steve Bannon, and Vice President Mike Pence. Today, Flynn, gone. Priebus, gone. Spicer, gone. Bannon, gone. Where have all the flowers gone? For sure, the drama's dialed down with their replacements. McMaster, Kelly, Sanders, and an empty seat in Bannon's office. It's almost like, if you can believe it, a normal White House. So, where's this new strategy coming from? Here we are in September. Trump's relationships with Republicans have become roadkill, but his new besties are Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. A deal to extend the debt ceiling and provide hurricane relief last week, and this week, if statements are to be taken at face value, a deal to codify DACA into law with a big package for border security, wall not included. Lest you think Trump has completely shed his skin, a series of Thursday tweets aimed at crooked Hillary Clinton, his hair up because the former Democratic nominee has come out with what happened and is returning, perhaps briefly, to media ubiquity. Making sense of it all, our guest today, Philippe Rhinus, longtime consigliere to Secretary Clinton and Donald Trump's method-acting stand-in for last year's presidential debates. Like De Niro playing Jake LaMotta, Philippe became the Republican nominee for three months and lived to tell the story this week in Politico magazine. Here to interpret from his own immersion into Trump's character what's going on with this apparent pivot and to explain, as Hillary Clinton's new book hits the shelves, what happened. All that and more after the break. Beginning in 2002, Philippe Rhinus was never far from Hillary Clinton's side, starting as her press secretary in her Senate office, as a senior advisor on her 2008 presidential campaign, and with her during her four-year run at state as deputy assistant state for strategic communications. He wasn't there at the beginning of the 2016 campaign, but became a major presence once debate prep got underway. By immersing himself completely into the role of a 70-year-old New York real estate developer, he became the opposition. His piece, What I Learned from Playing Donald Trump, is in Political Magazine this month. He joins us from our studios in Washington. Welcome, Philippe, to Trumpcast. Thank you for having me. Tell me about Operation Royal Water. Well, I should probably start with explaining Royal Water. It was um, when I was asked to do it, we took on, I had a little team of uh, wonderful people, and we needed, you know, because you always need a code name. Even when you don't need a code name, you take advantage of the opportunity to have a code name. And after going through a couple that I don't remember, we picked uh, Aqua Regia. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's um, the only compound that melts. It's royal water. 
translated from Latin. It's the only compound that melts gold. And since he's so ritzy and flashy and bling and gold, it seemed like it makes sense. So um, we got to work. And their guidance to me was, you know, first of all, this isn't an SNL skit. It seems like he never says anything on the policy front, but he kind of does. He does on his website a fair amount and his surrogates do. So be familiar with that. And lastly, they said, as much as it seems that he's kind of shooting from the hip, he comes in very, based on his primary debates, it looks like he comes in pretty prepared with oppo research. But and everything before, we're on, yeah, but before we get Before we get into the prep, the history is Bob Barnett often played debate foils or was involved in prep, and John Kerry played Mitt Romney. Why did you get tapped for this role? Yeah, well, first of all, Bob um, Bob played Mike Pence this time around, um, and from I didn't see it, but from all accounts, he did a great job. I was picked. Uh, it was it was the idea of a woman named Megan Rooney, who was one of the secretary's speechwriters at state, and then again uh, on the campaign. And when Trump uh, was emerging as the nominee, there was kind of an all hands on deck feeling. Um, also, there was just everyone felt that it was going to be icky, uh, win or lose. And um, she was always trying to convince me to do more, and the and the campaign was asking me to to do more. And out of nowhere, she said, "You should play Donald Trump." And I laughed, thought that was ridiculous. And then about ten seconds went by, and I thought that made a lot of sense. Um, and she said, "You've been training for this your whole life." And I think, you know, I went back and looked at the people who've done it, including Bob, who I've known for a long time, and Carrie. Um, and Rob Portman's done it on the Republican side a lot. And it's the first time some, I mean, I was out of my depth. These were folks, Secretary of State, sitting senators. Also, they had large staffs to help them. But I think the reason that everyone. I mean, I um, think of you as the consummate behind the scenes player, not the person right. standing at the podium. Well, I'm the consummate person who annoys her just by my physical presence. So that was a lot of it. You know, debate prep, you want the person to have experienced everything and heard everything before they're in the debate. That's rule number one. And, you know, everyone would always say, did you yell at her? Did you yell about Bill Clinton? Did you say nasty things? And anyone could do that. You could do that. Anyone listening could do that. What I think I was able to do was push her buttons in very subtle ways without bringing the whole thing to a standstill because it's otherwise not constructive if every time she opens her mouth, you just start yelling about email, even if he's going to. And I think that was an advantage I had. I've been with her for 15 years. I know, you know, I know her like the back of my hand. She knows I know her like the back of my hand. And she knows that I can push her buttons easily. Like the, you know, it's been getting a lot of attention this week because she writes about it in her book, What Happened, is the practicing for stalking. You've staffed principals. Yeah. They all have their little, you know, peculiarities. And actually, this wasn't a peculiarity of hers. But if she was doing an interview, a television interview, she didn't like seeing commotion in her you know, peripheral vision. So over 15 years, I got really good at sitting really still and you know, not triggering the T-Rex with motion. But I knew that would antagonize her. So for this exercise, I, I knew all I had to do was start getting into the very corner of her eye and that it would creep her out. It's not that anyone else could have done it. I just think I have a shorthand with her. Um, and also, I'm not intimidated by her. Maybe I was, but I don't show it anymore. And I probably take a little bit of a, a sick glee 
and yeah. antagonizing her. <laughs> uh, on the stalking thing, Philippe, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we, I think stalking became a thing in 2000 between George W. Bush and Al Gore. I remember some of Clinton's 96 town halls, 92 town halls when he was just, he, he was just able to deftly remain in the frame. Yep. And to what extent is it really Donald Trump stalking Secretary Clinton? And to what extent is it a complicit or drama intended director of the debate broadcast who says, I want a two shot? I don't want to give Secretary Clinton her own frame. Go with camera that puts Trump behind her. Wow. I think it's almost like you're the one who's channeling Donald Trump more than me. I mean, that's a great uh, blame the TV producer as a possibility. I, I would. I think, <laughs> well, you know, with Gore and Bush, we all remember that moment. Um, it turns out that Rob Portman, who was playing Bush, excuse me, playing Gore in Bush's debate prep, had done that in their prep. He had gotten in. Bush's face, and apparently for two reasons. One, they were in a small hotel room, so it was hard not to. But he had watched the primary debates, and he thought Gore had done that a lot with uh, Bradley. And Bush apparently got pretty pissy. He's like, what are you doing? He said, well, Gore does this because he's not going to do that. And if you watch the the film of uh, Gore doing it, Bush has a little sly smile. He does. Of course. And he said later that he was thinking of Rob Portman at that moment. Well, the difference is, is that I can get it done. That, that I can get something positive done on behalf of the people. That's what the question in this campaign is about. It's not only what's your philosophy and what's your position on issues, but can you get things done? And I believe I can. I think the way that I thought of it going in was that Trump had never debated from anywhere besides right behind a podium. I mean, these presidential debates were very different for him. The 12 were, packs, the 10 packs, the 8 packs. Exactly, exactly. And those debates were not very structured. It wouldn't be, Mr. Trump, you have two minutes. Mr. Cruz, you have three minutes to respond to Mr. Trump, who then have another minute. It was kind of a free-for-all. And as Ron Klain said, they had a pattern to them. It would always open, hello, my name is X. Welcome to X. Mr. Trump, the first question is to you. You said this crazy thing yesterday. Do you want to respond? And he'd talk. And then, Mr. Trump, healthcare, do you want to say something? And he'd respond. And they'd say, okay, Mr. Carson, we're going to talk to you about Yugoslavia. And it, it, he, he, we counted it. He never had spoken more than 19 or 20 minutes in total in any of these primary debates, even though they went, some of them went two and a half hours. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how much of a fish out of water he was going to be. And on the town hall debate, we thought he'd really be. And if you remember a couple of days before the town hall debate, they had done a simulated town hall debate in New Hampshire. I think it was a dry run that he didn't realize they were doing as kind of slipping in practice. The town and hall he, debate was St. Louis also with President Clinton's accusers half an hour before the debate. Yeah, the whole thing was just a, am I allowed to say shit show or you can beat me? Please say. Yeah, the whole thing was a, just a shit show. And um, we knew Trump was going to be awkward. So even if you don't think he's going to be menacing or we knew he'd be awkward. We knew he wouldn't know how to interact with the audience, where to stand. He'd be looking at her and saying, oh, she's standing. Do I need to stand? So lurking was a part of it, but it was also just being really awkward. And frankly, you know, since it's just you and me talking, kind of was sure that he was going to get caught checking her out because he can't help himself. And he kind of did. And he even yeah. said so a few days later in 
really kind of nasty terms. So we threw it all at her. And, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't lurk right behind her. I did it from the sides. But I think when you watch, whether it's mindful or not, or just doing it, he uses his size to intimidate in a not charming way like LBJ might have, which probably wasn't charming either. I mean, the whole open jacket thing just accentuates the girth in in significant ways as well. Yeah, I, I think he knew that he's, you know, whatever, 6'2", and, you know, she's 5'8", and uh, that he was going to intimidate her. I mean, I, he creeped her out. He didn't intimidate her. Share some of your method acting approaches to inhabiting this guy's character, you know, in, in some of the reports about what you did. And then in your own piece, you talk about using some self-tanning lotions, some Velcro yeah. knee pads, the 2005 Donald J. Trump signature collection watch, yeah. and the podiums you purchased on Amazon. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I wasn't picked because I'm 6'2 and have crazy hair. And that was, you know, back to the guidance of this isn't a stand-up act. I actually did these things as much for me as for her and the kind of the small audience, um, because I didn't want to forget what I was doing. And um, the podiums I needed just because I'd I'd never done it myself. I mean, I was, it turns out that I wasn't much different than him in a lot of ways. I didn't like practicing. I didn't like being timed. But the stuff I wore, and I I wore, um, I wore knee pads, or not knee pads, but knee braces to kind of keep me from swaying. And I wore back braces to hold my shoulders back. And these were things and on top of the American flag, and I bought the Trump cufflinks and the Trump watch, which, by the way, you can't buy anymore. I mean, these things apparently were not the greatest sellers. You got to start digging around on eBay. It was just so I never forgot that I was doing something different. Um, and the closest I came to – I didn't. I chose not to do the face and hair because that was a little too gimmicky. But I did, I did try a uh, tanning solution, uh, self-tanning. And if you remember the old commercial where you put two different – shampoos on each side of the head and she says it's tingling or he says it didn't really work out no one even noticed did the voice and tone how did that come out can you do any of that the clippy the clip i have to do it you ever see uh butch casting and sundance kid sure there's a scene where they're unemployed and they're trying to get a job with uh security and they're testing how good of a shot sundance is and he he misses totally and then the guy walks away just not impressed and sundance says can i can i get up can I move? He's like, what are you talking about? And he, he does it. He starts moving around. He shoots the rock up in the air and hits the rock again. It's, I find myself doing it without kind of doing it. I just want to know, uh, can you shoot your piece again? And shoot. Can I move? Move? What the hell do you mean move? better when I move. So I'll, I'll let myself slip into it if if possible. But it, it was more, I got the clipping down. And the thing that he really does um, is the digressions. So I would put these little arrows, these down arrows in the middle of my notes or my answers just to remember to go into complete tangent. Well, why um, should Mexico pay for the wall, Mr. Trump? Well, it's, you know, it's a beautiful wall. We're talking about a wall. I know how to build walls. Walls are are just something I know how to do. I built – back in New York, there was a ice skating rink, Walman rink. So it was terrible, terrible. city was spending millions of dollars over years. But look, I don't know how to ice skate, but I know how to build walls. 
walls, they're going to pay, but it's going to have a beautiful front. It's going to be because walls aren't just about immigration. Look, I love people. People people love me. They want to come in. I want them here, but they're going to come in through a process. But this is about security. I mean, he goes on and on and on, and it's just a, you know, the, the best clip I saw practicing was one of the debates where he was asked about social security. He went from social security <laughs> to North Korea in like seven seconds. It was remarkable. It's just a jumble to him. You know, one of the things that I noticed from Inauguration Day forward was that the tried and true dual SM57 microphones in the Blue Goose podium <laughs> disappeared the day that Trump became president, replaced by this long gooseneck, which goes right up to his lips. Yep. And at that first debate at Hofstra, as I looked, I said, boy, those podiums are exactly alike. And Secretary Clinton's mouth is much closer to her microphone than Trump's is because he's 6'2", and he must be hating that in the hall at Hofstra because he doesn't have that reverb that he's come to know and love from his rallies. Did you make a note of that? Well, so I don't know what point people stop believing all of this because it sounds like we're saying and I'm saying that we predicted all this. But we did a routine on the mic during prep. And, and the reason we did it, well, I'll tell you how it happened. So one day um, she's uh, – I don't remember what she was answering. And I, I, t I grabbed the neck of the gooseneck. And it, it kind of, like you said, it reverberated and it sounded like a voice of God or, you know, something was wrong. And she stopped short. She thought, I think she thought it was like a hotel announcement or some kind of like, you know, we're running a, a test of the fire drill. And she looked at me and she looked out at Karen and Ron and I said, I started rambling something about, the, about Mike. And we never broke character during these 90-minute sessions. And afterwards, she said, who the hell is Mike? And I said, oh, I meant not Mike. I meant the Mike. And it became this running joke about Mike, the Mike guy. And the reason I had done it was because he had, going back as far as a um, a rally in New Hampshire in January of 2016, and then actually two weeks before the first debate in a, a rally in Detroit, he would do this whole thing about how you know, he was getting hit a lot by the not paying contractors who did work for him. And he would say – um, you know, I get I, these people are these people don't know how to do business. They don't know anything about this. Can you hear me? Can you even hear me? No, you can't. You know why? Because this the, this mic guy, they don't know what they're doing. He, John, don't pay the George, mic guy. George Gigos, don't pay for the mic. Exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and so I did it in the middle and he didn't do it during the debate, but he did it afterwards. And what's horrible about the whole thing is the guy is not 100 percent wrong. I mean, it turned out his yeah. mic was fucked up. <laughs> Well, was it fucked up or was it just farther away? And he it was didn't not. It was not calibrated. It was not calibrated to be touched. And he has the exact tendency that you were talking about. Now here I sit with in hand a book. What happened by Hillary Rodham Clinton? All five hundred and something pages up. Five hundred and four sixty four pages of it. I've written a book. Uh, you're writing a book. These yep. aren't easy processes to go through. And nope. it is uh, early September, and the book is already written. 
fact-checked on the shelves in print, and she is doing a lot of media. Yep. Uh, so an accelerated timeline. You listen to a bunch of her interviews and comments. She's dead set on uh, her new pack or organization that is going to find candidates and support them in 2018. What are the tensions in Chappaqua that you're aware of between allow me to cede the spotlight to others versus me and my team got to get this book out. I got to get out there. I have to do all this rollout. And as much as people may not be ready to hear from me again or want to hear from me again, I got to be out there. You know, I mean, this is her, I guess, third or fourth book. Um, and again, watching it, it's exactly as you describe. It's almost like a, you know, getting a term paper done the night before. Um, I mean, a few of us, including the the three people who helped her right um i mean we slept in her house a couple of nights in her in her guest house um, who is the team it's uh dan schwerin yep. who has worked for her in the senate going back 2005 2006 megan rooney who uh, i mentioned before and tony kark who was the uh, campaign's um research director who who did a lot of the fact checking they were a unit and they were with her all the time um and then a few of us joined at the you know couple of different points, including the 11th hour. But she's done this before. And the, the part, you know, the part that I'll admit annoys the hell out of me is the, you know, the see the, the stage thing. That's just not something she takes into account. Look, she's not, when I first started working for her, I remember showing her like a USA Today or a Gallup poll, most admired person. And it said something like, uh, you know, her disapproval rating or people who really hated her was only 15%. And I said this like gleefully. And she said, you realize that's 45 million people. And I, th I think she's just used to it. And the notion that some DC insiders or Republicans or people who didn't vote for her, the deplorables especially, want her gone, who cares? If anything, that's all the more reason to, <laughs> to do it. But she also knows that there are tens of millions of people who voted for her and are as distressed as as you and I are. So, I mean, the notion that she's going to clear the stage is uh, is not happening. I think she's saying some important stuff. And, you know, to the extent that, that she's trying to get over it, I, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm still trying to get over it too. And, I, and there's, sure. a, there's an element to, to not getting over it. I mean, I, the thing that scares me most is the normalization. And um, we can either take shifts – you know, you take one month, I take the next month of making sure no one takes this as okay, or a lot of us have to feel that it's okay to still be upset. Um, and I think that includes her. And it's, it's what makes it a good book. You're writing in your article in Politico magazine, Philippe, you say it's good, really good. It's candid, and pretty blunt. She says what she did wrong. What in your view was the worst thing she did wrong or a couple of things? Well, ta tactically, I mean... You know, we were just talking – I saw her yesterday in New York for some of these interviews. And even with hindsight, I've not really heard anyone – and I'll, I'll answer your question specifically. But I've not heard anyone give a really good answer about how she she should have won other than he's an idiot. How do you lose to Donald Trump? People love that you didn't go to Wisconsin. But I hate to break it, everyone. She lost by a larger margin than that. And to me, Pennsylvania is the harder one to solve. And no one has a good answer to it. So – you know, the campaign to some extent was was working on the assumption from the first day that two plus two equals four. And it turns out two plus two equals five. So I have to break that up. On the on the on the tactical front, 
her saying deplorables, her calling, you know, however she phrased it, half of his uh, people or big chunk of his people deplorables was really, really uh, hellaciously uh, impactful. Um, I don't think there's any any question about that. I think people who didn't know she wasn't talking about them thought she was. Her calling, the, the comments she made about coal miners, you know, I'm going to put a lot of coal miners out of business and not meeting the way. I think that was devastating. But strategically, I just don't know. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I, I don't. She lived in Pennsylvania. She lived in Florida. She could have gone to Penn, to Wisconsin 10 more times. Okay, maybe she would have won uh, Wisconsin. She still would have lost the election. I, I just think there was something. How the hell did she lose to Donald Trump? I'll tell you how she lost. The same way that 17 Republicans, the best in their party, were bulldozed by him. I mean, just they put up no fight. He just tapped into something, and I don't think – I think he was aware of it, but I also think he was a symptom as much as the, the you know, the do you think illness. A two, do you think a 2008 Barack Obama would have lost to Donald Trump? No. I don't think a 2012 Barack Obama would have lost. I think he's the only – and I, I, I believe this. I think the only Democrat that would have beaten Donald Trump was um, President Obama. And, and the numbers bear that out. The, the overlap – and people who voted for both is pretty astounding. And I think they would have, you know, you had one out of every five people who came out of the voting booth on election day who said that not only did they vote for President Obama in 2012, but they still currently approved of the job he was doing. So he would have won. I'm dead set sure that Joe Biden would have lost because if you remove all the stuff specific to HRC, it was devastating. The third term curse. Being in yeah. Washington, never creating sure. a job, that stuff would have hit Biden as much as her. Sanders, if Sanders could have won, he would have won. I mean, there's a reason why he couldn't win the primaries. Warren, all of them. I just, it's convenient to say, yeah. I don't believe anyone would have beaten him. That She probably gave the best shot at it. Philippe, you, you end your piece uh, in Politico magazine, uh, which is... Basically, while you were talking about how you were getting into the role, but it's also a meditation on how Donald Trump has never accepted the consequences of any of his actions. You say, as for Trump, Americans of all stripes are hoping one of these days he'll have to pay the piper. But the next time we really get to present him the, the bill will be November 3rd, 2020. And your next paragraph begins, not only is that a long time away, but it's not a sure thing. Here we are, September. 2017, not a sure thing. Where do you think things end up? Again, since it's just you and me talking in the cone of, of just us, the age-old question of if the election were held tomorrow, would um, would he win? And I don't mean a rematch because rematch, I, I think she would win. And anyway, I'm not objective enough to answer that. But Donald Trump versus a nameless Democrat tomorrow, I think he'd win. And I hate to say that. I And it's not that I... I'm not attacking anyone individually on the Democratic side when I say that, but, you know, Dems love pointing to 2006 as a, as a you know, taking back the Congress and showing it. They're forgetting that was six years in, not two years in, and President Bush was reelected past John Kerry, even though Iraq was going sideways before that. I don't know, and I'm really worried about our primaries. I mean, they're just going to be an absolute clown car, and I I think... If people believe that, okay, it's a new 
it's a new day. You can say whatever you want. You can lie. You can, you know, brush aside my past misdeeds. They're wrong. I mean, he does it, but she couldn't last year. His opponents couldn't do it last year. And anyone who thinks that they're going to get away with it in 2020, I just think is wrong. So anyone who thinks that they're going to out asshole Donald Trump, I just don't see it. I think the biggest test really is going to be whether he's he's challenged. I mean, there are two people who lost, you know, since FDR after one term, one was Carter and the other was Bush, and they were both challenged in their own party. Teddy Kennedy was was one thing, but Pat Buchanan was pretty much just disapproval from the right. I think if he's challenged this time, it'll be a free for all. You know, if you get a Ben Sass or a Tom Cotton or a John Kasich to jump in, you're going to get all of them. I mean, they're all going to be so worried about someone winning that you're going to have him challenge three, four, five people. And frankly, I, I think he's going to take his ball and go home. I don't mean resign, but I think but he's going to run. I think he'll just put himself on ballots independently. I mean, Republicans are out of their fucking minds to th- to have ever thought and to this moment to think that he is going to be loyal to them. He ran as a Republican because it was the ticket to win, not because he believes in them. Look at his party affiliation. I mean, yeah, Reagan was a Democrat and then a Republican. This guy's changed party affiliation seven times. And I, I just, I, it's not that I'm bullish on 2020. I just don't think it's as automatic. I just, the division, I know it's trite to say, but, you know, thank God that we're split in terms of half of the, the left is on one coast and the other coast. If it was straight down the middle of the country, we literally would be looking at civil war. Three years from now, there will be a new round of debates, first yeah. within parties and then yeah. uh, between uh, the two final candidates at the presidential podium. And if uh, any Republican challengers to President Trump want a good stand-in for the president <laughs> and eventually uh, the Democratic nominee, there is none better trained at this point than Philippe Rhinus. His article, What I Learned from Playing Donald Trump, is in Politico magazine now. Philippe, thanks for joining us on Trumpcast. No, Josh, thank you for having me. And that's the show for today. But before we take off, are you following Trumpcast on Twitter? We're on there at Real Trumpcast. I check it all the time. Go follow us there to keep up with the show and all the latest updates for future live shows, our book clubs, and everything else about Trumpcast. And speaking of our live shows, we're in Texas next weekend, folks. Join us at the Texas Tribune Festival on Saturday, September 23rd at 7.30 p.m. at the Texas Union Theater in Austin. We'll be there with some very special guests. And if you can't make it to Texas, how about San Francisco? Trumpcast will be live from the Norse Theater on Tuesday, November 14th. Come one, come all, and join us at Trumpcast for the Trumpcast Circus. For tickets and info, go to slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. And special thanks to AC Valdez for staying late in the studio. And I'm Josh King. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.